Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff, international editor of The New Statesman in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, U.S. editor in Washington, D.C. I'm Ido Volk, Europe correspondent in Paris. It's Thursday, the 30th of December. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. This week, with some help from the wider New Statesman team, we look back at some of the most memorable moments of the year, from the storming of the U.S. Capitol... Capital entry. Capital entry. To COP26. If summits alone solve climate change, then we wouldn't have needed 25 previous COP summits to get where we are today. But while COP26 will not be the end of climate change, it can and it must mark the beginning of the end. Then, Ido, Emily, and I each share two of our predictions for 2022. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Listeners, welcome to our second annual Holiday Spectacular. We're going to do things a little differently this week. The first half of this podcast is going to be us with clips from the wider New Statesman team looking back on our moments of the year. I think this will be clear as we go on, but these are not necessarily the moments that we, in in many cases, are not the moments that we liked the most this year, but it's what stuck out to us over the past 365 days and the, the moments that we think informed the year that was and shaped the year that was. And then we are going to transition into making predictions for 2022. Why didn't you start us off, Emily, with your moment of the year? I am ready. And I... I Again, want to stress that this is not the moment I enjoyed the most. And in fact, I did not like it at all. But my moment of the year is the storming of the US Capitol building on January 6th. I just think that as an American, this shaped so much of what what followed. To, to remind those who, who have forgotten, during the certification of the 2020 presidential election, rioters, many of whom had been called to town by Trump and, and who had attended a rally right beforehand, stormed the Capitol building to try to stop the certification of the free and fair election. This was memorable, obviously. And I also think that we need to understand some of what followed, namely audits or politicians, notably Republicans, saying we just need to make sure that people have more faith in their elections. 
and passing um, votes at the state level that would make that will make it more difficult for people, most notably Black Americans, to vote needs to be understood in the context of January 6th. Ido and I discussed this on a podcast episode earlier this year. We interviewed a man by the name of Ted Johnson, who works at the Brennan Center, who who basically outlined the ways in which the attack on democracy and voting rights that happened since January 6th needs to be understood as a continuation of that storming of the Capitol. It's a story that we have covered repeatedly this year, American democracy and voting rights and the attack on both. And unfortunately, I think it is one that we will have reason to continue to write about and read about and follow in the year that comes, not only because we're heading into the midterms next fall, but because it's, it's to my mind, this is it's one of the defining stories of America. And if I may be so dramatic of world democracy. I'm reminded of the the quote by Juen Lai when he was asked about the legacy of the French Revolution and said it's too soon to tell. And I think that applies to this too. It's It felt like this one shocking moment that was over within a few hours. Even over the course of the year, we've learned more about what actually went on in the capital and how close it came to being a even more of a bloodbath than it was. And then quite how it will be written up in the history books once we've seen how American politics develops over this coming year, the midterms, the way uh, Republicans turn away from the institutions and norms of liberal democracy, and then, of course, the 2024 election. Its resonance depend on all of that. So I think it's absolutely a major event of this year. It will resonate possibly in elections elsewhere around the world. We might be coming on to this later. But then its long-term significance could take a very long time indeed to be fully understood. So I think that's a, a good place to start on. Our next moment comes to us from international managing editor Alex Kroger and is also one of long and as yet unclear ramifications. For me, Afghanistan was one of the most significant stories of the year, both in itself and because it enfolded other big themes. Watching the Taliban advance across the country was like watching the last 20 years go into reverse. Starting in the spring, they moved out of their heartlands in the south and west, in many cases capturing territory, but in some they took over without a shot being fired. By early August, the trend was clear. Kabul fell on the 15th, with some resistance, but not much. And then came the humiliation of the international retreat, as the US, the UK and other countries scrambled to get their nationals safely out of the country. The Afghans who'd worked with them were largely an afterthought. They besieged the airport, peacefully, brandishing their passports and the documents showing their claims to safe passage elsewhere. In many cases, it wasn't enough. Thousands got out, many more were left behind. Thus ended 20 years of international intervention after the 9-11 attacks. It was a muddled mission, but however flawed, it did at least have this in its favour. For a significant number of Afghans, women and girls especially, It brought the chance of an education, a measure of stability, and for those in the cities, a growing economy. After the fall of Kabul, international donors froze their contributions, unwilling to fund operations under a Taliban government. This has had harsh consequences. Millions of people are now going hungry, and the economy has all but collapsed. A trickle of aid is getting through, but not much. This will have consequences, and not just for the region. Already, some of the migrants making their way to Europe come from Afghanistan. Climate change is also having an effect. Much of the country was in drought this year, and the harvest was very poor. 
Attention may have moved on from Afghanistan for now. It will almost certainly return. I obviously strongly agree with Alex that this was a really major event in the year. And I think it's one that produced some of the imagery of 2021 that I think many of us will remember and that will appear in the history books in years to come. And of course, as you say, Emily, this is also one with wider ramifications. Afghanistan is facing a horrific humanitarian crisis going into the winter. And I think this was actually going to be one of my predictions for the year ahead, but I felt it was a bit too broad. But we are going to see quite possibly a mass famine in Afghanistan next year. It is not the only country where that is is at risk. The number of people suffering from hunger or food stress has been rising in the last few years. And some of the gains of the early 2000s on this front have been effectively wiped out. So I think it's it's going to be a very big story for unfortunately, very negative reasons in the the next year too. Related to the Afghanistan withdrawal was the deadline that Joe Biden set himself for that, which was, of course, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And our colleague Sarah Manavis, senior writer at The New Statesman, picked that as her moment of the year. The moment that has stood out to me this year, what I guess you would say like my moment of the year is, is the anniversary of 9-11, the 20th year anniversary. And I know that's a strange thing to pick, um, an anniversary, because it's not when the event happened. And I also know that a 20th anniversary is also slightly strange to choose because it's not the first anniversary or the 10th anniversary or the 100th anniversary. But I think what we've seen with the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is how much we've been able to learn about internet culture, conspiracy theories, and how misinformation travels online. Essentially with 9-11 being the greatest example of how potent and what the real world ramifications of that can be. As someone who writes about internet culture and conspiracy theories as my sort of main beat, reflecting this year on what happened around 9-11, what happened after 9-11 on the internet, it's just, there's so much that we've been able to learn. And in particular, something that we had not learned at the 10th anniversary, but now at the 20th anniversary, we really do understand. 9-11 was really the first time you saw conspiracy theories go truly mainstream, you know, jet fuel can't melt steel beams, the idea that 9-11 was an inside job. Those things really echo the misinformation that we've seen in the last five years really begin to take hold. And even just when we look back at this year, we look at misinformation online, disinformation online about vaccines, the way we see conspiracy theories spread like QAnon, even looking at the Capitol riots on January 6th, so much of that blueprint for how those conspiracy theories and how that misinformation spread started with and was built by what happened on the internet after 9-11. And for those reasons, that's why for me, when we do look back at 2021 and we look back at things that happened because of the internet and happened online, We can understand them better and we can understand why they happened and how they've traveled because of the way those same conspiracy theories traveled after 9-11. I just want to quickly say, Sarah rightly focused on on conspiracy theories and the role that 9-11 had in spreading conspiracy theories and how many conspiracy theories date back to that moment in in American and global history. I feel I would be remiss if if I did not note that another legacy of 9-11 was, I, I don't know that you would call it a conspiracy theory, but was the the way that the securitization or a sensible securitization of the United States. We've spoken a bit about, obviously, Afghanistan is a foreign policy legacy, but there were also many domestic legacies in the United States, notably surveillance and, and the villainization, really, of notably American Muslims. We wrote about that this year as well. And it was striking to look back on the last 20 years and see how much of the ire and vitriol that came out of that 
period is still with us in American politics today. Changing gears completely, what moment stood out to you from the past year? My moment of the year is the weaponization of migrants that the Belarusian regime undertook from this summer, which escalated in the autumn when several thousand were massed at the border with Poland, trying to get into Poland. I think this really demonstrates several facts. It demonstrates the utter lack of scruples of the Lukashenko regime in terms of the tools and the levers it's willing to reach for as it attempts to put pressure on the West and to retaliate as it sees it against sanctions and measures taken against it in response to the presidential election last year, which is widely agreed to have been stolen from Svetlana Tikhanovska. And it also demonstrated some, in my opinion, relatively palatable truths about European politics, in particular Poland, which pushed back migrants to to Belarus and took a generally pretty harsh line against migrants and took pretty harsh measures against migrants. It was generally supported by the European Union and by other European countries, despite its, or maybe because of its very harsh measures, which largely succeeded in stemming the flow of illegal migration from Belarus. So I think this is a kind of pretty revealing episode in several ways. And unfortunately, maybe it might presage more similar tactics by unscrupulous regimes at Europe's borders in the future. I don't think this is the end of the weaponization of migration, because quite simply, migration is a quote-unquote problem, which is not going to go away anytime soon. And there are plenty of regimes and countries at Europe's borders, which might reach for migration as a tool to put pressure on Europe. So as Ido says, this is not wholly unique to Belarus. This is not just a Belarus story. But to the extent it is unique to Belarus, I encourage all listeners who have not already to go back and listen to Ido's interview with Svetlana Tikhanovskaya herself. To the extent that Belarus is but one of several authoritarian or authoritarian-leaning countries in the world. Would you like to introduce the next clip? This is what Megan, Senior Editor International, has chosen as her moment of the year. My moment of 2021 was the case of Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai. In November, the 35-year-old athlete took to social media to accuse China's former vice premier of sexually assaulting her. Within minutes, her post disappeared. Then she did too. In the weeks since, only brief, suspiciously edited videos and photos of Peng have emerged, including a December 19th interview she gave to a Beijing-friendly newspaper in which she said, actually, she had never accused anyone of sexual assault. Much of the world remains unconvinced, fearing that China's authoritarian government is controlling the tennis player. The Women's Tennis Association has been unable to reach her and has since suspended all its tournaments in China. Beijing which is due to host the Winter Olympics in February, values the soft power credentials that famous world athletes, such as Peng Shuai, offer the country. But many fear that the government values control over its citizens even more. Megan and I actually discussed this in greater detail on a recent podcast episode. And what jumped out at both of us was that the Women's Tennis Association was really one of the only bodies that has taken the sort of bold stance that it did against China by saying, we take this really seriously and we're not going to continue to have to play there. The role of China in international fora was another story of the year, as were the international fora themselves. That's right. This has been my inelegant transition to Philippa Natal, our editor for Environment and Sustainability. 
and her moment of the past year. My moment of the year was COP26. Not because the summit was a success that brought climate action into line with climate science, but because in the midst of the COVID pandemic, it was a truly humbling experience to see people, ministers, experts and activists from all around the globe coming together to discuss the defining issue of our time. Yes, as we discussed on World Review last week, COP26 did not live up to some of the most optimistic expectations vested in it. And I think there is a sense going into 2022 that the world really is running out of time. There were some points of progress at the summit, but increasingly you have to measure such achievements against the uh, urgency of, of the subject. And I think that the with every year in which the world continues to emit more than it can really afford in terms of its carbon budget, the demands or the, the bar for success at summits like the annual COP gathering. And next year's it will be the COP27 will be held in Egypt. So there'll be a lot of interest in that. The bar gets higher because the need for urgent action becomes more pressing. So I think it was a significant moment, not in that it was an absolute total failure. There were some achievements, as Philippa says, because it just was an order of magnitude lower in its output and in its results than, than what was needed. So with that, I'm going to give my moment of the year and obviously, personally, I followed the German election very closely. And I do think that the result in the new government here in Berlin is significant for the EU. But in terms of uh, global politics, I'm going to have to go with something else. And that was the announcement in September of the so-called AUKUS deal, whereby the UK and the US will help Australia build a fleet of nuclear-powered submarines. I, th I think it was significant in and of itself because it showed the these three uh, English-speaking countries working together extremely closely. And I think that the deal spoke of a very high level of trust. I think it was significant in and of itself also because it was handled quite poorly. I think, as I mentioned in last week's episode, I do think that the way that the previous Australian deal with France was simply abandoned without warnings to the French government was not an example of the best sort of international diplomacy. And I think there the fault probably lies most with the Australian government. But I think also because it speaks to several wider themes that really define our age and define the mounting contest between China and the US and its allies. Themes like the importance of cutting edge technology. The contest in the Indo-Pacific is about much more than manpower and ship power. It's about the sorts of technology that the two sides can deploy. And by sharing nuclear propulsion technology with Australia, which is a technology that, that the US does not readily share, even with its closest allies, the uh, American administration is making a big statement about the importance of having its alliance as a whole be able to draw on the most advanced technology available. And we saw the importance of that of technology also in the revelation, I think it was in October, that China had tested its first hypersonic missile uh, in the late summer, which was a revelation that really caught the US off guard and I think alarmed many in Washington about the China's technological sophistication in this field. And Adam Tooze wrote a very good cover essay for us in, I believe it was early September, that, 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 that spoke to all of this, actually with quite a bullish take on the prospects for the US in this contest. I also think AUKUS was significant because I think it demonstrated that the US is not trying to build a sort of one-size-fits-all alliance to contain China, but is trying to work through multiple different formats. So whether it's the Five Eyes group on intelligence sharing, AUKUS on nuclear submarines, the, the Quad, so Japan, Australia, India, and the US. I think I mentioned that last week and actually got that list wrong, but the Quad has shown its importance. The Quad Plus, so that group plus other regional powers like uh, Vietnam or South Korea, the CPTPP trading block is also significant. And so we've got this sort of kaleidoscope of alliances in the, the Indo-Pacific 
region which are doing different things on different fronts. And then just finally, I think it, it does speak to the fact that while I think the, the arguments for the deal were, were, were essentially pretty strong, that we are seeing a growing risk of some sort of escalation or even accidental conflagration in that region. You've got more and more sophisticated military hardware operating in those waters in that that Western Pacific. You've got more and more different alliances and groupings. The chances of an accidental escalation, I think, are, are rising. And it is a worrying thought, particularly, as I mentioned in a, in a cover feature that I wrote on this in September, there isn't any sort of red phone, as it was called, in the Cold War back then between the, the uh, White House and the Kremlin, but of course today between the White House and Beijing to resolve any urgent crises. So I think AUKUS was important in and of itself, but it also spoke to bigger themes that, that define our age. Absolutely. And if you listeners are interested in the US foreign policy component of that, I have wonderful news, which is that next week we, have, we will release the first of our three-part series, Battle for the Soul of America, one year of Biden's presidency. Not to spoil anything, but the first episode is on foreign policy. So if this was of interest to you, do tune in next week. We have a range of experts, star guests, etc., to talk us through the last year of American foreign policy. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the new Statesman on digital, in print, or both for as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That was our 2021, our moments of the year. But as we head into this next new year, we're going to quickly share some of our predictions with you. 
Just before we start, I should add that both Emily and I have written uh, articles accompanying this discussion, which we'll put in the show notes for this podcast. So look out for those for our, our full predictions for the year ahead. And as ever, we will return to them at the end of the year, both in, in text form and on this podcast to see how we did. So look out for that. And we also have a piece from Edo coming up on the look ahead for French politics in this important election year there. Ido is the smartest of us all because he refuses to make concrete <laughs> predictions and thus can't be wrong this time next year. That's so having called out my colleague, I will begin with my own predictions. Uh, my first is that the rich world will not sufficiently share vaccines or share the necessary intellectual property to let vaccines be made around the world. I just think it was so clear over the course of this past year that is what needed to be done to get us out of this pandemic. And it has not been done. I am not at all confident that in 2022, world leaders will look around and say, Oh, we've, what we've donated so far is willfully insufficient, and we're and will instead continue to make the same mistakes. And it seems to me that by making that prediction, you're de facto predicting further new variants breaking out of the undervaccinated parts of the world and disrupting life in the in the rich world. I fear that I am. Yes. Yeah. Although it's also interesting to see how debates in the rich world develop about whether you can continue expecting. Um, citizens to submit to endless lockdowns. I think there is a, there is a real sense of people's patience coming to an end in in, in parts of Europe and, and indeed the US on this front. There is, although I do think I do want to note for any American listeners that when we say no more lockdowns and when Europeans say no no more lockdowns, we're talking about two completely different things. And I, I don't mean to make light of the sacrifices, the genuine sacrifices that people across America made, but it's just it, what we went through did not compare to this to the stringent sort of restrictions that were put in place across across Europe. Personally, I am frustrated both that we are still in the pandemic and also with those who say, just go back to normal and actually have a piece this week about the the second year of the pandemic. And I, you're right, Jeremy, fear that I will be writing a similar piece come the end of 2022. My prediction, first prediction is somewhat related to that. And that is that it will be, I think, the most difficult year for the Chinese Communist Party since at least 2008 and the global economic crisis, and possibly since the student protests of 1989. And I think that for various reasons, on, on, on a number of fronts, China's domestic situation is looking difficult going into 2022. To refer to our previous subject, COVID is resurgent in parts of China, particularly the city of Xi'an, which is in a new lockdown as we record this. Infection rates are the highest since March 2020. And it really takes the shine off the great Chinese success story of the last um, 18 months, which has been the degree to which it has quashed the the COVID pandemic. And of course, this is going into a period in which China is supposed to be holding the Winter Olympics in February. And I think the sheer severity of the restrictions that the few international visitors who will be allowed in will be subjected to will be, I think, a, a reminder of the, the cost of China's a zero COVID strategy about which I think more and more questions will be asked if the current outbreak continues. But it's not the only big challenge. I think the Chinese property market is obviously in crisis, most, most evidently with the slow motion bankruptcy of the giant developer Evergrande. There, I think there are a range of possibilities. It is The Chinese property market is vast. It is responsible for about a third of China's growth in recent years. And it is indebted to the tune of about 55 trillion US dollars, which is about four times China's GDP. So much more so proportionally than other sort of big economies. The CCP wants to take the air out of the, the big property bubble, but whether it can do so without triggering some sort of Lehman Brothers style crisis is an open question. I think even in the best case 
um, you know, scenario and they manage a soft landing, you will see a major, com- what has been a major component of Chinese growth experience, a drastic slowdown. And it is on the basis of very high growth levels that, ch- that the Chinese Communist Party has founded its legitimacy in recent years. And we're already seeing predictions of the lowest growth since 1990, if you exclude the exceptional year of 2020. Um, next year, just about 5%, which is for Chinese standards, very low. And then you have other kind of long term challenges like demographics, China's birth rate will probably fall behind its death rate next year for the first time since the Mao era. There are also pressures on the energy market. So I think on all sorts of fronts, a real challenge for the for a CCP that wants to is claiming that the next year will be one of stability, one of boosting the prospects of China's middle class of reining in some of the excesses of inequality and sort of market capitalism that have driven the country's prosperity in recent years. And this all builds up to a very sensitive period at the end of the year where in in the autumn where um, in October there's going to be the 20th Party Congress of the CCP where we'll get a sense of whether Xi Jinping will remain president for a an unprecedented additional five or ten years. So I think a sensitive year and a difficult year. I don't expect a full-blown political crisis, but I think some major challenges and some major fractures in the, the, the kind of political and economic model that has defined China over the last decade or so. Yeah, that's really interesting. Just on that, I'm, I'm going to be particularly interested to see how if how, how China manages its exit strategy from its zero COVID, mm. its exit plan from its zero COVID strategy, if it does at all. We've seen in the past few days that the cost of maintaining that zero COVID strategy is incredibly high. So like millions of people are locked down in cities like Xi'an at the moment, like a really tough lockdown to quash just a few tens of cases of COVID and how you exit from that strategy, how you, if, if you do at all, do you say that uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of people are going to die when you release restrictions and accept that you have to live with COVID? Can any government do that is a really open question, I think. Yeah. We forget also that China does not have, as you know, much as the talk these days is about the common prosperity agenda on growing the middle class, on more economic security. China does not have a rich world or sort of European style social safety net or welfare state. And, you know, if, I think, yeah, precisely that, you know, that if, if, if you do have widespread infections, how well the, the state can cope with that is, is an open question. But why didn't you give us your, your first prediction? I've been bullied into making predictions. So <laughs> listen, this is very much a cry for help. No, my first prediction is that the rule of law crisis between Poland and the EU is going to simmer on, quite likely probably escalate, and there is going to be no resolution in sight. So just to outline what this is, essentially the EU accuses Poland's ruling party of systematically undermining the rule of law and capturing the judiciary and essentially um, removing the independence of of the courts, just completely undermining it and cutting it. And this year that, that really escalated in particular because we had a ruling from the Polish Constitutional Court, which the EU accuses of being a captured court itself, ruling that EU law is not supreme over the Polish constitution. And as we've spoken about before on this podcast, if you have a union without common laws and common enforcement, then it ceases to be a union, really. And so this uh, this ruling undermines the entire basis of European integration. And predictably, that made Brussels very angry. And, and so we've seen a kind of escalation of this crisis, which had been ongoing since the ruling party in Poland came to power in 2015. And in, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen the EU launch infringement procedures against Poland, essentially trying to sanction it for what the EU characterises as 
Poland undermining the rule of law. And in return, we've seen a kind of additionally defiant stance from Yaroslav Kaczynski, who's said that the EU is a kind of fourth Reich and things like that. Some very harsh rhetoric. So there's not really any indication that this is going to head to a resolution anytime soon. And um, this will be one of the kind of big themes of European politics in the year, in the year to come, I think. Yeah, and I think it will be interesting to see whether this theme of national constitutional courts or Supreme Courts challenging the primacy of EU law becomes is, is, is evinced elsewhere. We've, as we record this, Romania's constitutional court has just effectively called the EU law's primacy into challenge as well in, in, with regards to a ruling on, on corruption scandal there. So where the sort of you have further cracks in the legal order of the European Union, which does require the European Court of Justice to have a final say, will be an important topic. I completely agree with Ido that that is what we're likely to see between the EU and Poland. And actually, this is related to my second prediction, which is about the other frequent flouter of the EU's rules on rule of law, Hungary. My second prediction is that Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and his Fidesz will be will manage to hang on through the elections this year. I think that the Hungarian opposition candidate, um, Petr Markizak, who is a small town right wing mayor is probably the best possible type of person for this challenge has been accepted. I think, as Jeremy has written, the fact that the opposition is unified will make or could make a difference. But I just think that that in Hungary, it's not you're, you're not just running against the prime minister, you're running against a system and that Fidesz control over, for example, the media makes it such that this just isn't a it's just not a fair competition. And that because of that and because of the genuine support, that the combination of that, the system, and the genuine support that Fidesz still does enjoy in parts of the country will lead to Orban remaining in power. I do want to caveat this by saying that I, I know that I can quite can often sound quite pessimistic about democracy. And I think that if, if one watches democratic societies, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, there can be this tendency to to look and say, oh, it's never getting better and, and things will just go from it's it's always going to be like this. And as we've seen in places, for example, Slovakia, that's not always the case. Things do change. I just don't think that they're going to change for Hungary in the next few months. Yeah, I think they do They do face an uphill struggle. And it's, alongside the media, it's also things like the election authorities themselves, which have been effectively captured by Fidesz. Uh, that's related to, this isn't a prediction, but I also wanted just to flag here the Brazilian election in the autumn, which I think is another case of a country whose institutions of liberal democracy have been strained almost to breaking point by a right-wing authoritarian leader, in this case, Jair Bolsonaro. The polls suggest that he will be defeated by the left of center Lula, but whether or not he would, would accept such a result is open to question. He has openly flirted with the idea of doing, to, 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 to take us back to where we started in this podcast, doing January the 6th of, of some sort and attempting, as Trump and his supporters did, to overturn the result of a of of legitimate election. So I, I, I wouldn't make a prediction on this front, but I think that there are serious questions about whether in the event of a Lula win, you get a peaceful and smooth transition of power in Brazil, which of course doesn't, who, whose institutions are not as strong and rooted as those of the US Republic. So I think that's also going to be a notable point. All right. So you've said that's not your second prediction. What is your second prediction? <laughs> which was actually a sneaky way of doing, talking about three things. Um, no, my second prediction is that the Iran nuclear deal will not be resurrected. So for those of them who haven't been following it closely, this was the deal, the so-called JCPOA to which Iran trade sanctions relief for 
war controls on its nuclear program and negotiated under the Obama presidency in 2015, implemented 2016. Um, Donald Trump withdrew the US from that in uh, 2018, since when Iran has returned to military level enrichment of uranium. It's supposed to be limited under the terms of the deal to enriching uranium to 4%, which is what's needed for civilian purposes, so nuclear power and, and medical applications. It has now been enriching uranium to 60%, which is close to the 90% needed for uranium that can be used in a nuclear bomb. And the estimated so-called breakout time, which is the time it would take Iran to enrich uranium sufficient for a bomb, is now fallen to under a month by some estimates. And so there's a real sense that time is running out and there have been attempts to resurrect the deal taking place in Vienna. But things have been made difficult by politics, actually both in the US and in Iran. In August, Ebrahim Raisi came to power as the country's new president. He, he is a hardliner, unlike his predecessor, Hassan Rouhani, who was considered more of a reformist and comes from a sort of a sector of, of Iranian politics very close to the Ayatollah Khomeini, which was always more sceptical about the nuclear deal. And you saw that the talk suspended for the months immediately after he came to power. And with Iran now so close to breakout, the, the talks have recently resumed, but it does look like something of a deadlock. Iran is demanding immediate and upfront sanctions relief. The sanctions are hurting quite severely. But the US, which, which is only indirectly represented at the talks because it hasn't fully returned to the deal, doesn't accept that and, and, and I think feels that sanctions relief without commitments on, on, down, on scaling down the nuclear program would effectively re- reward Iran moving towards a kind of military-grade um, uranium enrichment, as it has done over the last year or so. And on, on the Iranian side, I think there's obviously a sense that trust in the US is extremely low. And I think in Tehran, they watch US politics, and they are aware of the real possibility that there will be another Republican president in power from the start of 2025, possibly even Trump or someone like him. And I think there's a sense there that what, what good is any sort of deal when there's a reasonable chance that the next US president will rip it up. And I think whether or not we end up with some sort of very bare bones agreement, or the whole talks collapse, which is also a serious possibility. I don't think we see a full a full resurrection of the deal. And the, the possibilities should the talks collapse are very worrying indeed. You have the other parties to the deal reimpose sanctions, potentially Iran accelerating its nuclear ambitions. Israel has already said that it's preparing military action for the event that Iran looked close to a nuclear breakout. And so I think I, I wouldn't necessarily predict a sort of a full-blown war in the region, but I think at the very least a return to the sort of tensions we saw in early 2020 with the assassination of Qasem Soleimani by, by the Trump administration and possibly worse. I actually also had JCPOA negotiations break down for good as one of my seven predictions that listeners can read in the article, so I clearly agree with you. I think this also relates to another one of the points we've discussed here, which is Afghanistan. And mm-hmm. Iran looks to looks to the way that the US sort of walked out of Afghanistan, even at the cost of major chaos there. And I think possibly took the lesson. So keen is the Biden administration to pivot away from um, the Middle East and Western Asia that it would be prepared to you know, pay a high diplomatic price for doing so. So whether or not that calculation is right is another matter, but it's um, not irrelevant to this either. With that, Ido... Would you like to now round out our our predictions by making your second one? Yeah, um, I'm going to slightly cop out on mine. So mine is about the mm-hmm. French presidential election. Yes, what a surprise I'm copying out. Mine is about the French presidential election. Basically, although it seems like the most likely outcome is still Macron to be re-elected, he leads in both polls of both the first and second rounds. And if the election was held tomorrow, he probably would win. We can also see a wide fracturing in the French political arena, there are many, probably more plausible or semi-plausible candidates 
than there have ever been in recent history. We've got Macron, we've got two candidates on the far right, Zemmour and Marine Le Pen. We've got a candidate on the centre-right, Valérie Pécresse. We've got various left-wing candidates, um, some of whom can be said to be relatively plausible candidates. And so my prediction is that although by design the French electoral system gives one candidate, quote-unquote, a majority because there is a two-round system and the second round has two candidates and so one candidate will win over 50% of the vote. That's mechanically what happens. In fact, what is what we're probably going to see is a significantly fractured electorate, significantly fractured voter base where it may well be that the winning candidate will be the first choice of barely a fifth of voters. And as we've seen over Macron's five years in power, one of the main criticisms that's levelled at him was a kind of haughtiness and arrogance, a belief that he quote-unquote, knows better and doesn't really need to listen to the opposition and to, to criticisms of him. And I think that's probably in part a function of this electoral system, which although he, he he won only less than a quarter of votes in the first round, he was rewarded with a pretty significant result in the second round because he was against Le Pen, so he won two-thirds of votes. And then he won a, his party won a pretty big majority in parliament in elections that happened a couple of weeks after the presidential election, which gives the illusion that there's this kind of big, uh, strong majority and uh, big mandate behind him. But in fact, the actual picture is a bit more nuanced. And some of the, I think you can in part ascribe some of the social fractures that we've seen over the past five years to that kind of disparity between this electoral system and in fact, the the real state of, of the electorate. Yeah. And I think it'll be interesting to see what level of abstention you get in the second round, whether it's, for example, Macron, Pécresse, and you get large abstention on the hard right, or it's Macron, I don't know, Le Pen, and you have lots on the left simply unwilling to make a choice between them. I think that's going to be worth watching. And I I think perhaps in my predictions, I say that that currently, if you force to make me place a bet, I would probably reckon on a narrow... Macron win over Pécresse in the second round. But I just, I, I really wouldn't be willing to put money on, on any sort of outcome because there are so many unpredictable factors. Either what happens with COVID, Macron has put a big, vested his authority in the success of a vaccine programme as the way out of the the pandemic, whether it's the French presidency of the EU, which starts in January, and whether that's deemed a success, where the other events intervene. We haven't mentioned the, the possibility of war between Russia and Ukraine, but that could also be a, a feature of the French presidency. Of the and what happens on the, within the political land, landscape in France as well? Does Zemmour drop out and, and put his support behind Le Pen? Something like that could make a big difference. So I think, I think it's really hard to make a prediction on the actual result. And I think that is an intelligent way around that. It's, it's, quite a, it's quite a sort of contrast because literally for the first four years of Macron's presidency, essentially every poll had another matchup of Macron versus Le Pen and Macron winning again. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was almost a law of nature, like the sun, rises in, the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening and Macron is going to face Le Pen in the second round. And since this summer, what we've seen is that very settled picture has become much more volatile, much yeah. less predictable. And now you have a, pretty much everyone thought that was what was going to happen again. And now we're seeing that there are only a few percentage points between the main three or four or five candidates and just a a handful of 
people or a very small proportion of people changing their mind could very uh, drastically change change the picture overall. Yeah, and we, we forget how contingent Macron's win in 2017 was. If the centre-right candidate, François Fillon, hadn't been consumed by a, a corruption scandal, how that would have played out is very hard to imagine. So he was also very lucky last time. So let's see. But for listeners who want much more on the French election, I'm also very excited, along with Emily's upcoming three-part series on the Biden administration one year on, about the launch of Edo's new podcast, France Selects, in January. Edo, when's the, the first episode out? The first episode will be out on the 27th of January, I believe. So we're going to be covering uh, all sorts of issues, the campaign, foreign policy, domestic policy, the left, the right, the far right, with a host of exciting guests. And we'll be doing that in the kind of detail that uh, Jeremy pioneered on Germany Elect. So it's, it's all very exciting. And you can tune in for, for that from late January. Brilliant. Looking forward to that. And I've also been looking forward to Emily's traditional holiday surprise, in which both Ido and I are utterly unprepared and, and uninformed. That's right. Something that nobody asked for, but I have for the second year done anyway. Loyal listeners, longtime listeners will remember that last year took a visit from St. Nicholas and rewrote it, rewrote this timeless classic to be about the world review. Now, I am not one to repeat my performances. So you are all about to get a spoken word version of Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree, rewritten to be Rockin' Around the World Review. Rockin' Around the World Review, a now twice weekly pod, discussions and interviews you can hear to global events, we nod. Rockin' Around the World Review, let the holiday spirit ring. We just made predictions for 2022, don't worry, we won't sing. You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear Edo, Jeremy, Megan, Alex, Deck, the Halls, it's German Neelex, rockin' around the World Review. Have a happy holiday. Everyone chatting merrily, producers Adrian and May. You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear voices calling out, you ask us, Deck, the Halls, it's pretty low fuss. Rockin' around the World Review. We will all be back next year. Until 2022, we wish you all good cheer. The end. Congratulations. That's, that, that was, as, as always, wonderful. And I think next year we need to instrumentalize. Yeah, next year I'm getting jingle bells. I were, I'm, I'm going to expense it. Jason, our Calier editor-in-chief, if you're listening, I expect full orchestra. No, just kidding, Jason. I, I particularly enjoy the rhyme of uh, You Ask Us and Low Fuss. Very, Listen, very that's what we do here on, on World Review. Emily, thank you for that delightful holiday surprise, the highlight of, a, of what has been in many moments a very gloomy year in world, relation, world affairs. So thank you for that and uh, sending us into the new year with something upbeat and spirited. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. You can revisit any of the past episodes we mentioned today at newstatesman.com slash podcasts slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can read our international team's reporting at newstatesman.com. Yes. And why not use um, this end of year look back and the hopefully quiet period around New Year to listen back to some of our previous episodes, as Emily mentioned in her excellent spoken word rendition of Rock Around the Christmas Tree. We have now been twice weekly for a number of months. And there were some great episodes this year, I think. I hope you, our listeners, agree. We've had talked about Brazilian politics. We've talked about, we talked, we covered the Israeli election, the violence in Gaza. We talked about hunger around the world. We had guests like Adam Tooze on China, John Simpson on Afghanistan, as mentioned, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya on Belarus. We talked about Japanese politics, covered the COP summit in, in great detail. Obviously, we had my special series on the German election. So do listen back to those. A lot of it is still very relevant and I think has broadly stood the test of time, if we do say so ourselves. And take a look at those if you're interested at newstatesman.com slash podcasts slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast.
We'll also be back on Monday with our next interview episode, which will be with Cristiano Figueres, the the brains behind the uh, success of the Paris Summit in 2015 to talk about global climate policy. You can subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next year. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.